2: show that sort of 40-50% of people think there will be World War III not only in their lifetime, but in the next decade or so.
3: That was Dominic Sandbrook talking to us about how the Cold War affected British culture.
4: The, the, the tension's building up and so when the Archduke is assassinated it becomes a precipitating factor. I think other things could have done it as well.
3: And that was Margaret Macmillan, author of a new book on the First World War. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe today for subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. If you want details of all of those, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. Dominic Sandbrook's upcoming TV series Strange Days is one of the lead offerings in the BBC's Cold War season. In the series, Dominic focuses on how the Cold War impacted on various aspects of British life, and he also explores this topic in an article that he's written for our December issue. I spoke to Dominic recently to find out more about culture in the Cold War. And in the process, I discovered how Phil Collins may have helped to bring down the Berlin Wall. How much of an impact would you say the Cold War had on British culture?
2: I think the Cold War had an enormous impact on on British culture and on the sort of British imagination between 1945 and 1989. It's something that we now downplay a little bit. And when I started my TV series... I said to um, my sister-in-law, who's in her mid-twenties, oh, we're doing a program about the Cold War. And she said, oh, right, so you're going to have to go to the Arctic. And I said, the Arctic? She said, yeah, the Cold War. Presumably that happened where it was really cold. And I think there's a sense in which we've um, lost sight of the Cold War a little bit. But it was an enormously – I think it was an enormously powerful cultural moment as well as a political and kind of diplomatic one. And if you look at all the sort of popular culture that we remember from the post-war period – music of the Beatles the films and the books of James Bond the you know Doctor Who threads um, the Avengers all these kinds of things the Cold War emphasis is is very obvious um, and I think there's There's the ideological element of the kind of struggle against um, communism. There's also the kind of looming fear of nuclear annihilation and the sort of fear of the future, which I think is a very powerful element in British culture in the sort of 50s and 60s and so on. And there's also this sense, I think, in which the Cold War gave Britain a new role. So as our empire broke up, we saw ourselves as kind of holding the line against communism internationally. And it kind of gave Britain a sense of where it stood. And then after the Cold War, and that ended at the end of the 1980s, then there was this moment of, you know, who are we and what do we stand for and what are we actually all about? So I think the Cold War, you know, of course it's something that's often in the background, but that's still interesting. And I think it's almost worth thinking about it almost as kind of the wallpaper or something. You know, something that's always there, a soundtrack, playing in the background of ordinary people's lives.
3: Do you think the people who are creating a lot of this culture in this period, would, would any of them have had a particular agenda they were seeking to push through with their culture or were they merely reflecting the tensions of the time?
2: No, I think one of the really interesting things about Cold War culture is how it comes from all different angles. So you have, you know, people like, let's say, George Orwell, somebody who is, you know, intensely politicized. It's quite difficult to pin down, you know, both the right and the left now claim Orwell as one of their own. But somebody like Orwell, when he writes 1984 uh, at the end of the 1940s, you know, he's writing that with a very strong sort of politicized agenda about criticizing totalitarianism and and arguing about, um, you know, the, the, the future path that, that things might take. And if you go to another extreme, if you look at, say, James Bond, which seems much more frivolous, you know, Ian Fleming is writing that very clearly from an anti-communist, you know, point of view. You know, the Russians are often the villains, particularly in the books. Um, The Eastern Bloc is the enemy. There's a sense of kind of uh, the other as, you know, exotic and uh, slightly frightening at the same time. And I think it would be impossible for anybody to read those books now and to miss the kind of Cold War agenda. And then you have um, a totally different example, something like uh, The War Game. Peter Watkins is filmed in the mid-1960s at the BBC. Pulled from the schedules effectively um, made it impossible for people to see it on TV. And that's a warning about what could happen if the bomb drops. So again, it's very it's got a very obvious kind of political message about you know, nuclear disarmament, about the dangers of the bomb, the dangers of Cold War escalation and so on. And these are things that were... You know, part of the fabric of people's cultural lives. You know, James Bond, a classic example, something that everybody was familiar with by the early nineteen seventies when Roger Moore took over as Bond. But something that you know, we often overlook the kind of very obvious, overt Cold War agenda of the Bond books.
3: Now, in America, it would be very, very difficult, almost impossible, to to publicly be a sort of pro-Soviet, pro-communist person in the cultural establishment. Was it feasible in Britain?
2: I think the British uh, case is very different from the American case. You're absolutely right that in America, there is this climate of almost neurotic um, anti-communism, understandable, but but kind of neurotic, you know, to the extent that somebody like Charlie Chaplin, uh, when he's, he comes back to Europe in 1952, he's prevented from returning to America because of his allegedly pro-communist sympathies, which I think are a little bit... Um, exaggerated. And in America, it became very difficult, particularly in the 1950s, to hold anything like, you know, pro-communist opinions without being stigmatized and ostracized and so on. In Britain, I think it was a little bit easier. You know, you have someone like Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, who, you know, makes no secret of um, uh, of his communist affiliations or, you know, his affection for the Soviet Union. Um, particularly before 1956. But Hobbesborn was still, you know, quite an establishment figure, certainly in the academic world. And I think in Britain there was a sense that, you know, there was this kind of ghastly thing that vulgar Americans did, which was red-baiting and, and you know, paranoid anti-communism. And then we wouldn't do such things in Britain. So, you know, we do have betting and there is a kind of implicit, quite quiet anti-communism. But it's never carried to the extremes that it is in the United States. And if you look at, let's say, the BBC... The BBC in the late 60s and early 70s broadcast some astonishingly, you know, overtly left wing um, films in its kind of uh, Wednesday play and play for today strands films that, you know, quite clearly um, argued a very, very uh, hard left agenda by people like um, Ken Loach and Tony Garnett. And, you know, you could, the BBC did offer a kind of space in which you could do those kinds of things. Now, That's not to say that those people weren't hassled from time to time, that they missed out on work because of their sympathies, that they kind of had to put up with a level of, um, you know, a a level of of kind of bother and of uh, interference that, you know, in a much more pluralist society they wouldn't have had. But the, the fact is, I think it's much easier to be an artist or to be a kind of writer or something and to be on the left in Britain in the 1960s and 1970s than it is in America.
3: Did the government, British government, ever try to create cultural products that were sort of in support of its own political line in the Cold War?
2: Yes, I think there is um, there is a sort of understated government effort to encourage uh, uh, sort of Cold War um, cultural products. Uh, the government encourages um, in, a, in a slightly ham-fisted, sort of understated way. Films in the early 50s that, that push a kind of anti Soviet line. Um, and, you know, that through organize, organizations like the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is partly CIA backed, which would organize sort of conferences of writers and um, it put a lot of money into the magazine Encounter. And it's sort of, you know, there are all sorts of opportunities there for you. You know, you can do trips and go to, go to Paris and kind of give lectures and all of this kind of thing. There, there is a little network, if you like. Um, with, with government sponsorship. But it's nothing like as, again, it's nothing like as, as sort of large-scale, as overt, as well-funded, or as kind of aggressive as the examples that you get in the United States. I think there's a much more sort of understated approach to the Cold War by the British government. So, you know, I mean, don't forget that we had been, you know, Stalin's ally in the Second World War, and that kind of um, pro-Russian sentiment actually lingered quite, quite long in... Um, sort of British imagination and I think there was just this feeling that you know you don't take things too far because that's what Americans do and we are not like that and we're all good chaps and gentlemen and all this kind of thing so we won't take it to the extreme that you see you know over the Atlantic.
3: Now the Cold War itself was far from a static event did the, the tone of British culture change as the Cold War did so for example would it have been very different in say the Cuban Missile Crisis period from then the later detente period?
2: Yes, I think the the Cold War, you know, goes through kind of peaks and troughs. Um, You know, I don't know whether you'd call it hotting up or cooling down, depending on your sort of perspective. But in the sort of late 40s and early 50s, it's certainly at a peak um, when Churchill makes his Iron Curtain speech and when Orwell is writing and when you have this sort of panic about um, about the Russians having their own bomb and about espionage and so on. And then I I suppose in the... um, for a lot of the 60s, actually, we always think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but for a lot of the 60s and, and the early 70s, the Cold War passions were not quite as intense. So, you know, Yuri Gagarin makes this tremendously successful visit to Manchester in 1961. He's just been the first man to um, go into space. And he's greeted by huge crowds. It's very successful. He's a great folk hero and so on and so forth. And again, through much of the 70s, when you have the era of detente, it seems that East and West are finally kind of getting along. There's much less sense of tension and kind of paranoia. And then you get the 80s, uh, the advent of Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and you get this real, I mean, escalation. There's a real sense in which, you know, polls show that sort of 40%, 50% of people think there will be World War Three not only in their lifetime, but in the next decade or so. Uh, you have programs like Threads on TV, which absolutely kind of wallow in a, in a brilliant way in this kind of um, harrowing, very depressing, very paranoid sense that a nuclear apocalypse is just around the corner. So it does. You're absolutely right that the Cold War is not a static thing and it keeps changing and and people's attitudes to it change over time as well. And I think one of the other things to bear in mind about the Cold War and, and British people's attitudes to it is that everybody knew it was there. Everybody assumed it was going to continue for a very long time. You, know, you don't find people predicting the end of the Cold War, even as late as the early 1980s. People assume that it's a sort of fact of life. And partly because of that, it's not something that they think about every day. You know, they don't wake up and immediately start thinking about the Cold War. It's just there in the background, a kind of nagging fear that sort of chips away at people's psychology and that some people take very seriously and other people, you know, just got better things to do with their lives, so they get on with it. But it's kind of – it's interesting that it kind of seeps into everything, you know, because even to go and buy a new – a new house, a new cooker, whatever it might be, to kind of buy into the capitalist free market system is kind of implicitly a Cold War act because you're propping up your own economic system against the rival ideology in which such things are controlled by the state.
3: And were there any aspects of British culture that weren't affected by the Cold War or that deliberately sought to distance themselves from what was happening in the Cold War?
2: Oh, that's a clever question. Um, Sorry. um, (laughs) Sorry. I mean, there are, of course, you know, you can carry this too far and you can um, argue the Cold War, you know, you can see the Cold War in everything and, and carry it to extremes. But I think what's really striking is actually just how much every aspect of life is, is somehow tainted or is touched by the Cold War, even football, you know, something that you might have thought would be completely escapist. The way that people talk about... Um, the Russian team Dynamo Moscow, when they come to play in Britain in the 1940s, you know, as a machine, as a collective, as a kind of triumph of um, state socialism and so on. You know, it's a good example of the way in which you know, even the most frivolous aspects of life somehow is touched by this ideological conflict. Or if you go to the forward in time to the Moscow Olympics in 1980, yet again, you know, something that should be an escape from the political passions of the day becomes a kind of political theatre. You know, the British runners against their Soviet counterparts and so on and so forth. So the funny thing is the closer you look, the more everything begins. You know, when you put on your kind of Cold War spectacles, everything begins to have a kind of Cold War tinge to it. You know, pop music, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark's great song Enola Gay, which is very much a kind of reflection of the kind of nuclear paranoia of the early 1980s. So although it's something that a lot of people could perhaps have put to the back of their minds, in almost every aspect of our cultural life, I think the Cold War was kind of there.
3: Clearly, British culture is exported around the world and, and certainly was then. D- did British culture impact on the Cold War in terms of its effect on, say, America and the Soviet Union?
2: I think British culture had a very uh, big impact, um, particularly you know, east of the Iron Curtain. And the reason is because I think you know, American culture is kind of um, supercharged, you know, turbocharged capitalism. And it's very easy for um, the sort of Soviet authorities to dismiss and to say, you know, it's just a product of the kind of Hollywood Dream Factory and all the rest of it. Um, British culture, you know, something like the Beatles, it's a brilliant way of actually reaching... Um, people behind the Iron Curtain with this kind of message of freedom. And I think when people listened to the Beatles in the late 60s in Russia, they used to exchange kind of bootleg tracks on um, old medical x-rays. So the Russians nicknamed it Rock and Roll on Bones. And when they used to exchange these kind of illicit bootleg tracks, what they saw in the Beatles was a band that symbolized freedom, uh, self-expression, self-indulgence, and fun. Things that actually were very very short supply um, in the communist bloc, so Britain, you know, partly because of its geographical proximity, becomes a very important conduit to get those kind of ideas across um, to the Soviet Union and to the countries, the occupied countries of Eastern Europe. You know, and, and you see that a lot, I think, with British you know, with punk. Let's say, punk in countries like the then Czechoslovakia, became a kind, you know, in Britain it was seen as rebellious, it was teenage rebellion, rebelling against our establishment, who of course happened to be the capitalists, but in, you know, but somewhere like the Czechoslovakia, punk is seen as anti-communist, you know, it's a, a scream of rage against the kind of old men, the repressive authorities, who are keeping the Czech, and Slovak peoples in their place. So I think British culture does have a huge impact. And if you look at, I mean, we tell the story in their final programme of this concert in Berlin in 1987. It was to celebrate um, a 1,000 years, I think, of of the city's history. And it was in West Berlin, but it was very close to the Berlin Wall, so people in East Berlin could hear it. And the headliners were um, David Bowie, the Eurythmics, and Genesis, all of whom, of course, were were British. And you have this extraordinary um, scene where thousands of uh, youngsters in East Berlin kind of flock to the wall. They even go in front of them dance in front of the Soviet embassy, you know, desperate to hear these British pop stars. So it's only a kind of, um, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that, you know, in some ways the man who won the Cold War for the West and brought down the Berlin Wall wasn't Ronald Reagan and it wasn't Mikhail Gorbachev. It was, of course, Phil Collins.
3: when well, I've heard some people say that David Hasselhoff ended the Cold War, but do you think Phil Collins has a stronger case to that?
2: Um, I think, uh, you know, when you set those two men against each other, Hasselhoff and, and Collins, it's quite clear that w- one man is a sort of... Um, is you know, a god of, of charisma and style, and that man is, of course, Phil Collins. I've been mistaken for Phil Collins in the United States. I was on a bus in Minneapolis and someone identified me as Phil Collins, asked for my autograph, and when, of course, I spoke to deny that I was Phil Collins, my accent gave away the fact that I was Phil Collins. So I've got a very soft spot for Phil.
3: So Phil is our Cold War hero, not David Hasselhoff.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, Hasselhoff, of course, is American as well, so, you know, we've got to claim Phil Collins.
3: Okay, and just one last question. Um, you, you, in the piece that you've written, mentioned that you yourself grew up in the cold war era were there any particular aspects of cold war culture that left the biggest impression on you
2: well i think like anybody growing up in the late 70s and 1980s you know i loved james bond um i you know loved all those kind of uh you know doctor who type programs that imagined kind of nuclear disasters and all those kinds of things but the thing that really sticks in my mind um i was a I guess about um, eight or nine. So we're talking about 1982, 1983, the peak of the sort of, um, the paranoia, about cruise missiles being stationed in Britain and the kind of green and common and is Mrs. Thatcher going to trigger World War Three and all this kind of thing. And I can vividly remember our class at school, the teacher coming in and giving us this incredibly depressing book to read called Brother in the Land. We talk about this in the film, actually. Um, and Brother in the Land is a sort of vision of Britain after a nuclear attack. And, it, you know, things could not go worse. Everybody dies. It's complete misery and degradation and all the rest of it. And at the end of this you know, almost preposterously depressing story which we read in class. A teacher, who I now recall had a beard and sandals, uh, addressed us and said, you know, this is actually going to happen. The Russians have all these missiles pointed at us, and we have, you know, tons of nuclear missiles pointed at them, and for our own folly, we are going to bring this about. And that I mean, I can remember it to this day, you know, left a huge impression on me. And I suspect on quite a lot of my classmates as well. And I guess it's a reminder of the ways in which you're not even, I guess, the childhood classroom, the sort of books that you read as a kid, not even that, that sphere of life um, was immune from the kind of anxieties and the pressures of this kind of great global struggle between East and West.
3: That was Dominic Sandbrook. His series, Strange Days, begins on BBC Two next Tuesday at 9pm. And as I mentioned before, Dominic has written a piece for our December issue, which is now on sale, and where you'll also find articles on Alfred the Great, a talented Tudor matriarch, the Plantagenets and JFK. Look out for our December issue in all good news agents and digitally.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As the centenary of the First World War approaches,
3: the causes of the conflict look set to come under renewed scrutiny. In her new book, historian Margaret Macmillan explores the social, technological and political changes that shaped the world of 1914 and some of the key figures that pushed Europe into war. Margaret spoke to our book's editor, Matt Elton, about the months that led up to the conflict. So talking, I guess, to start
5: with about the, the years before the war, um, to what extent was it a period of um, security, like a golden age of security?
4: The years before the First World War were an odd combination. I mean, I suppose you could say the same of our own times. That people were more prosperous, they were living longer, Europe was making terrific progress. I mean, people could look back at a century of extraordinary progress um, industrialization, scientific and technological advances, Europe becoming extremely powerful, prosperity spreading, growing middle class, working classes sharing more in the prosperity, cities getting bigger, all this. And so it, you had this sense of security, prosperity, an assumption that progress is going to go on, but at the same time, and it's very much like our own society, there were strains within it, and so there was a growing working class which was beginning to share in in the growing prosperity, but it it was also becoming, in some countries, increasingly militant. Um, You had a whole wave of terrorist activity, again, I think the parallels with our own time were quite interesting, you had national rivalries, national tensions, and I would say nationalist fervors were growing rather than diminishing. And so it was a mixture, as I suppose most times are, of on the one hand, apparent prosperity and progress, and on the other hand, tensions which threatened to undermine that. So it was not entirely an easy, I mean, the idea that it was a golden age,
5: yes, but, you want to say. Okay, fantastic. Um, How far do you think the people in countries around Europe really believed in the ideas of progress and rationality in science. Do you think that those had led them to believe that war was impossible, or that you should know, not even consider it as being a factor?
4: I think for a lot of people, war had become impossible. And you have to remember that they had lived through one of the longest periods of peace in Europe's history. Mm. I mean, there had been a few short wars between 1815, when the Napoleonic Wars ended, and 1914, when the First World War broke out. But they were short, they were decisive, I and mean, the war between... France and the German Confederation in 1870-71 ended with a decisive victory by the Germans over the French and a peace. Mm. And what other wars that had been fought were really around the world. So you've got wars in Africa, you've got wars in Asia, you've got the American Civil War. But Europe itself Mm. had really been extraordinary lucky. I mean, it's like the long period of peace we've had in in the West since 1945. And so I think people got used to the idea that peace was the normal condition rather than war. Yeah. And I think they also, many people, and I think that was particularly true in the middle classes, thought, you know, we've become so rational and we've made such progress. War is no
5: longer possible. I mean, why would we do something like that? You know, we yeah. don't do that anymore. Mm. It's really interesting. I mean, behind this, um, and the book really explores this really vividly, there's this whole series of, kind of alliances and tensions between different countries yeah. um, which goes a lot of the way to shaping um, the path to war. I mean, do you think? It, for, I mean, taking for instance Britain. I suppose. Um, what do you think led to it changing its stance towards the rest of Europe?
4: Well, the British had had a policy for most of the nineteenth century. In fact, it's, it's a policy which they'd followed in earlier centuries as well, of not isolation but remaining aloof mm. from Europe. I mean, their main interest was their empire, which was, of course, the world's biggest empire, and their trade. They were the world's largest trading nation really until 1914, although that was being challenged. And what the British really wanted was, was peace and quiet on the continent. Mm. And what they wanted was a balance of power. They didn't want any single power dominating a continent because that would be bad for Britain. If a single power dominated the continent, then it would be difficult for Britain to get, or could be difficult for Britain to get access to markets and it could be a threat to British interests. Mm. And so from the British point of view, as long as things on the continent remained fairly stable and in equilibrium, the British didn't need to, felt they didn't need to intervene... But towards the end of the 19th century, the British were becoming concerned that they were becoming too isolated, that aloofness was turning into isolation. Mm. And they were beginning to realize just how few friends they had. I mean, they were rivals with the French, as they had been for centuries over empire, among other things. They were on very bad terms with, with the Russians. and um, there, were, there were real sort of colonial rivalries, imperial rivalries in, in Central Asia. Afghanistan, of course, where the great game was played out. They were... Worried about Germany, they got on okay with Austria-Hungary, but it was really, I think, not one of the major powers. And they were in bad times with the United States. And in fact, a lot of people thought that if a war came, it could possibly be between Britain on the one hand and France and Russia on the other hand, or possibly between Britain and the United States. I mean, there were times when when they came pretty close to that. And so the British were beginning to realize that they didn't have many friends. And then the South African War the Boer Wars, it used to be called, between 1899 and 1902, showed them just how widely they were disliked. Mm. You know, if you look at the, the European press at the time, and in, in, in the rest of the world, it was very anti-British. The British were seen as the great big bullies, bullying around these two little republics. Mm. And the fact that the British then used concentration camps to round up the Africana women and children, and that many of them died as a result of British, and, British incompetence, really added to the picture of a bullying, callous... Um, um, cruel power. And so the British, I think, began to rethink how they would engage with the rest of the world.
5: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, talking about, I suppose, France, um, how did the relationship between France and Russia evolve? And um, also, I suppose, how did Britain become kind of allied okay. with France?
4: The relationship between France and, and Russia evolved because each needed something the other had. What the French were concerned about was manpower. Mm and they knew that they couldn't take on Germany on their own. German birth rates were higher than French birth rates, so the German population was was already bigger than France's, and we were going to get even bigger, the gap was going to grow. And Russia had manpower. I mean, if one thing Russia had, it was manpower. And what the Russians needed was technology and financing. Russia was developing very fast indeed, but it needed assistance from outside, it needed investment from outside, and a lot of Russia's railways were going to be built with French money, and this was very important for the Russians. And so, although the two were politically very different, I mean, here is Russia, an autocracy, um, allying itself with Republican France, it was yeah. an odd yeah. combination. They needed each other and they both shared a fear of Germany.
5: Okay. I mean, talking about Germany, it's interesting that Germany's focus on naval power had such an impact on yeah. the rest of Europe.
4: Well, I've I've thought, and I'm sure many would disagree with it. I've thought one of the the key factors leading towards the First World War was the German decision to build a deep-seas navy. Mm. Germany was the biggest land power in Europe. It dominated the centre of Europe and increasingly its trade and investment was dominating Europe. I mean, as one big German industrialist said just before the First World War, he said, it's crazy to spend money on the military. Give us a couple of generations we will dominate Europe peacefully economically, as as in fact has happened since 1945. And the decision by the Germans, and it was not all Germans, but it, you know, it, it reflected, I think, the very um, unbalanced nature of the German constitution, where, where too many, pe- far too few people at the center had too much power, mm. uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, but also his ministers. And Wilhelm and his minister of the Navy, Admiral von Turpitz, decided that, Brit- that Germany needed a deep-seas fleet. It was partly the thinking of the time, and it was a p- predominant school of thought, which said that you couldn't be a great power without... Overseas trade and overseas colonies, and to do that, you needed a big navy. Mm. I mean, we don't think like that anymore, but that was the way people thought in those days. And so, the Germans, who had really only had a sort of coast guard, which sort of went up and down the, the German coast and the Baltic and the North Sea, yeah. which, which was perfectly adequate for what they needed, decided to build this navy. And Tirpitz argued that we will build a navy big enough. We, we won't build a navy bigger than Britain's, which is the biggest navy in the world, but we'll build a navy big enough that the British will hesitate to take us on because it would leave them too weakened against all the other powers. Mm. It was what, what he called the risk theory. And so he said, we will make the British sit up and take notice of us. They will then have to become friends with us. Okay, well, yes. the calculation, of course, yeah. didn't take into account that the British might not decide to do this. And what the British decided to do when the Germans started to build big battleships is they thought, okay, <laughs> you know, we're going to take you on. Yeah. And so they launched their own program of building, including, of course, they built this huge new ship, the Dreadnought, mm. which immediately made other battleships obsolete. So the Germans found themselves engaged in a very expensive naval race. It also drove Britain away from Germany. Mm. And towards France. Towards France and towards Russia. I mean, mm. the natural alliance, in many ways, would have been an alliance between Germany and Britain. Mm. They were each other's major trading partners. And they had cultural, a lot of cultural things in common. In the British royal family was German, after all. And they had ties of family. Um, both countries were predominantly Protestant, although they had Catholic minorities, so culturally they shared a lot. Germany was the biggest land power in Europe. Britain was the biggest naval power in the world. You know, we, you, would have said it's, you would have said it's a natural partnership.
5: Mm. I mean, how unlikely was the partnership between um, France and Britain?
4: Well oh, the partnership between France and Britain was extremely unlikely. I mean, if you look at the history, mm. and I, I believe history matters in shaping attitudes. I mean, the French saw the British as perfidious Albion and the british saw so the so the french as you know deeply frivolous and and um, hostile to them and they had been rivals for centuries, yeah. and, you know. And if you even look at the language. And if you want to say something rude, you say à l'anglaise in French. And if you want to say something <laughs> rude in English, you say "French." You know, taking French leaves means mm. leaving rudely without saying anything to anyone. I mean, it, it, you know, it's reflected in the language. It's reflected in the history. Um, reflected in the railway stations, Waterloo in England. Yes. Yeah. You know, the Austerlitz um, in Paris, which was one of the great,
5: great German victories. So, I mean, you know, this is a long rivalry, because you say in the book that actually the war, or the path to war, is decided by a very small handful of people. Yeah. Are there any particular characters that stand out to you as being, I guess, either heroes or perhaps playing a huge role in this story? Yeah, I think at moments in history,
4: who's in office does matter. Not all the time. I mean, you know, normally things can sort of go along, you know, much as they would, and there are certain things that countries do and don't do, and they have long-standing interests. But you do get moments when individuals matter. I think, in the case of Germany, If you'd had a different Kaiser, things might have been different. Um, The trouble with the German constitution was the Kaiser had a great deal of power. Mm. And it was all very well if you had someone there who was sensible and listened to his ministers. And if you had someone who wasn't sensible, Wilhelm II wasn't sensible. I mean, I don't think he was by any means a bad man. In in many cases, he he opted for peace in crises. But he was one of these people who was completely erratic. Mm. And he talked too much. And he was constantly saying the most... Belligerent and sort of warlike things, which which left an impression of a belligerent and erratic Germany. And he did want a navy, and, and he was able to do it because of the sort of role he had in the German constitution. And Tirpitz, I think, plays a huge part. I mean, Tirpitz and the Kaiser, between them, pushed for a navy, got the necessary financial bills through the Reichstag. And set in motion the Anglo German naval rivalry and helped to drive Britain towards France and Germany, mm, uh, yes. towards France
5: and Russia. Yes, yes, fantastic. Are there any nations who you think also played a key role or the emergence of which played a key role?
4: A number of nations were beginning to emerge before the First World War and were beginning to take a part in the world, and I would pick out two in particular the United States and Japan. Mm. Japan was the rising Asian power. I mean, the Japanese had successfully dealt with the Western challenge, had modernized themselves really in a generation, and had become a major Asian power. They're not not yet a world power, but they were certainly a major major Asian power. And they were beginning to uh, take a really important strategic role in the Pacific. And the British saw this and, in fact, made an alliance with them in 1902. So you're beginning to get non-European nations playing a part in the calculations of the European powers. The other one, of course, is the United States. It's not yet a superpower. I mean, that really is reading back into history what happened, but you can see it becoming a world power, and it's becoming... It's the rising economic power, much as Japan is, and it's beginning before 1914 to translate that economic power into military power. Mm. And not You know, you can be an economic power without being a military power, but what the Americans are beginning to do... I mean, in 1898, they had an army smaller than Italy's, and they had a minuscule navy, By 1914, they had the third biggest navy in the world. So they're beginning... so quick. It was quick. Well, it was pushed, and they had the capacity, of course. They had the industrial capacity to do it, and the technology to do it. And they're pushed by Theodore Roosevelt and others, who think... And the United States is beginning to also see that it needs a navy, because it's beginning to extend its powers beyond the continental United States. Mm. And with the Spanish-American War, they take on responsibility for the Philippines... a number of islands, they've already acquired a number of islands in the Pacific of course including the Hawaiian Islands, and so they're going to have to protect them, and they're becoming more involved in in
5: Central America. Mm. That idea that countries have to expand to stay successful, Um, there's a thing in the book about how China feared that it was going to be carved up by other countries, do you think that made war inevitable eventually?
4: I never like to say that war is inevitable, but I think imperialism and imperial rivalries added to the tensions. Among nations, I mean, there there are fashions in thinking about the world much as there are fashions in anything else, and it was fashionable to think in the 19th century that you weren't a power unless you possessed colonies, and somehow colonies were were assets in the bank, if you like, that that would help to keep you strong, and so there was a real scramble for colonies. In fact, if you look at the balance sheet, most colonies didn't pay for themselves and cost money, but that was not how people thought. And so Africa had been pretty well divided up by 1900. Very, very few bits of it remained independent. Ethiopia and Liberia, and that was was pretty much about it. And so Africa had been carved up. Most of Asia had been carved up. And China was left there as a real temptation because it was ruled by a declining dynasty. It had huge internal problems. And the different powers were already moving in. They were already building railways. And railways in those days were, were, were a way of spreading influence and moving troops around. And so you could see what the divisions would look like. I and mean, the British going up the Yangtze Valley, the French coming up from the south, the Russians yeah. coming down from the north, the Germans coming in from the sea. You know, you could see that it was all going to happen. What I think helped to, to, to save China was a sense among the powers that they, they would risk war if they really started moving in. This was not something they necessarily wanted to do to fight a war in the Far East. Mm. And the United States, and indeed I think others, were, were, were so sort of keen on the idea of an open door that everyone should have access to China's markets and have influence in China, but not move formally to carve it out. But that was always a possibility. It was very much the same with the Ottoman
5: Empire. Uh, moving towards the months, um, towards war, I suppose, in 1914, um, do you agree that the killing of Franz Ferdinand is the single most important event? I would say that the killing of, of the Archduke
4: in Sarajevo is the precipitating event. Okay. I think any other number of such events could have precipitated a war. I think okay. Europe had reached the point by 1914 where, unfortunately, enough people in position to make decisions about war thought, we can do it, we can get away with it, we can solve something here, it might even be a good time to do it. Mm-hmm. And there had been a series of crises, and if you look at the crises, they're getting closer and closer together. You get, you know, you get a crisis, and in, in, you get a crisis in Morocco in 1907. You get a crisis in Bosnia in 1908. You get another crisis in 1911. You get, then the Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913. So, I think if you look at it, the, the, the sort of almost, you're getting a crisis almost every year, and you're getting sort of the, the, the tensions building up. And so, when the Archduke is assassinated, it becomes a precipitating
5: factor. I think other things could have done it as well. Okay. Talking about your research uh, in the book, um, what's been the thing that surprised you the most? Uh,
4: quite a few things have surprised me. I think it, it had been a long time since I really looked at the subject. I had not really seriously thought about the outbreak of the First World War since I was an undergraduate, mm. but it was one of the things I was fascinated by. And what interested me was, was new research showing that um, Russia, for example, was developing much faster than I realised and was really on the verge of sort of taking off. I mean, Russia was, was the great success story in, in many ways, which didn't, of course, make things easy for people living in Russia, because no. it imposed real strains. But Russia was becoming powerful, and, and, and by 1914, um, key figures in the Russian military, and the Russian establishment, were talking about projecting Russian powers. They, they were prepared to take the risk. The other thing that, I suppose, surprised me was that I hadn't quite realized that the Archduke Franz Ferdinand himself had been a moderating and a sensible force in Austria-Hungary, at least in international relations, and in previous crises had spoken against war and had reigned in the generals. Okay. And the irony was that by killing him, the um, assassins removed one of the people who might have helped to prevent the First World War.
5: Yeah. I mean, are there any particular heroes of yours in the book, any characters that you particularly warm to?
4: Well, one of the characters I warm to was Jean Jaurès, the great French socialist... He was, he was one of these people who was intelligent, selfless, funny, very human. You know, he, he, the wonderful description of him sitting at dinner talking, and he gets so excited that he sort of holds food on a fork <laughs> for hours on end, he you know, doesn't notice what he's doing. And he, he, was, you know, he was really a sort of humane man, he, he read widely, um, he worked for peace. He, he was also—he one of these very um, impressive idealists who was also very good politically, so he was always prepared to work and try and compromise. And he was assassinated just before the war broke out as he was trying one last that ditch attempt to try and prevent it.
5: Yeah. And conversely, are there any people who you think we can pin blame on, or a large share of the blame at least?
4: Well, it's, the whole question of blame is tricky, and it, it sort of goes on and on and on. But I would, I would say that there were those who risked war actively, like Conrad von Hutzendorf, the chief of the Austrian general staff, who was always advocating war. I mean, every time there was a crisis, he said, let's go to war. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, will, I will hold him to blame for that. There was Tirpitz, who, who, who really helped to initiate the Anglo-German naval race. I would also blame those who were fatalists and said, what can we do? Wars like likely to come, mm-hmm. which I would include the German Chancellor and, and the German Chief of German General Staff. And then there were those who were simply too weak to say no. I mean, in the end, the pressures built up, and those, there were still those who could have stopped it. Who could have said we're not signing the mobilisation orders? We will not do it, and that includes the Tsar of Russia, includes includes Wilhelm II, uh, Germany, and they didn't say no. They they gave way to the pressures. So I Mm. think, you know, it's it's a it's a failure of leadership, um, and in the face of of at least a few key people who were pushing more
5: actively for war. Mm. So do you see, um, kind of fairly far on, you know, to the end that it could have been avoided, that we could have stopped.
4: Yes, I mean, I don't think... I mean, the problem with the First World War is there's so many possible causes yeah. Yeah. that people tend to think, with well, that many causes, it had to be inevitable. And, you know, but I think you can say exactly the same thing about the Cold War. Mm. And it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, and, and at the various stages, when it got to the edge, people pulled back. And that was partly because of nuclear weapons. But nevertheless, I do think, um, you know, just because you have lots of reasons for it, doesn't mean you have to have it. Someone has to, or some people, in the end, have to say, okay let them you know, unleash the dogs of war, you okay. really do. Yeah. And um, I don't think it was never, I think when it was probably became impossible to avoid was once, once Russia
5: had mobilized. Yeah, okay. Um, you mentioned parallels with today's situation. Do you think there's instructive parallels to be drawn?
4: Yes, I do think there are instructive parallels to be drawn with today's situation. I mean, I think what the period before the First World War shows is how very important it is not to allow blocks to develop and to keep talking across the blocks. And I think we're fortunate now we live in a situation where we don't have clear divisions among power blocks, and I think that is a good thing. I think it shows how important it is to do what was done successfully in the Cold War, and that is do confidence-building measures, and to reassure the other side or to reassure those who who might be potential enemies. So it's important to, to, for example, during the Cold War when NATO was having... Troop maneuvers, it would let the Warsaw Pact know and vice versa, you know, mm. to reassure them you know, or, or to, to give the other side details of, of what you're planning. Um, I think secrecy is always very bad yeah. in this because if people don't know what your plans are, they're going to
5: suspect the worst. Mm. Do you think that's what happened? That people who weren't involved in these alliances distrusted what was going on elsewhere? Yeah, well, I think once you've got the alliances systems building
4: up, um, you've got a tendency to see everything the other side did through the worst possible things. I mean, there's a wonderful example of this with, with the Russians. Um, looking at Austria Hungary, and Austria Hungary was having a, a parliamentary crisis, I think it was in 1912, and the Reichstag in Austria, they had a number of problems, but the Reichstag in Austria refused to approve funds for the military. And the Russians looked at this and they said, Oh, they're being really clever, they're pretending to approve, to refuse to approve funds, but we know they're really doing it. So mm. you get this sort of suspicion. Yeah. You know, yeah. everything on the other side does. And, and of course, all the alliance, I mean, there are lots of alliances sort of tied in with these systems before the First World, World War, and all the alliances were defensive. And everyone said, well, they're just a defensive yeah. alliance. Okay. You know, we're, just, we're just defending ourselves, and we've just said, you know, if, you know, we'll come to the aid of our friend if they're attacked, but we won't initiate anything. But it doesn't look like that from the other side. No. Okay. And when you buy lots of weapons and you build lots of fortresses and so on, you're saying, just to defend ourselves, we just need... You know, but it doesn't. perception is very important. Yeah. It doesn't look like that from the other side. It looks like you're getting ready to fight.
3: That was Margaret Macmillan. Margaret's new book, The War That Ended Peace, How Europe Abandoned Peace for the First World War, is out now, published by Profile. And Matt's interview with Margaret also appears in our December issue, which as I mentioned before, is on sale now. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who got in contact recently was Beverly Oxford, who particularly enjoyed our recent interview with Tracy Borman. Beverly writes I just wanted to get in touch to say how much I enjoyed listening to your podcast about the flowers women, which I heard today. Although a maid of Kent originally, I do now live near Lincoln, and I have no idea of the story, which is a tragic piece of local history. Thanks for your message, Beverly, and the episode that she was referring to was broadcast on the 19th of September and is still available to download via our website, iTunes and all the other podcast providers. Of course, you can also keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra and of course we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus we have our website, historyextra.com where you'll find news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more from the world of history. Next week we'll be finding out about an intriguing new history radio series, Spin the Globe, and we'll be on location with Simon Thurley at an important site of Britain's industrial past. Do join us for that. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and on location in London and produced by Jack Fletcher.